following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning again, guys. Good to be with you. Peace be with you all. John, John messed it up when he wore it last week, so it's not fitting my face anymore. He's got a slightly larger beard than me, I think, so he had to make more room. Okay, can you hear me? Is this working? Great. Uh, well, good morning. Yeah, grateful to be with you and uh, excited to gather and study God's Word. Um, if you have your Bible, please open it to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, before we study the Scripture this morning, we're going to take some time to pray for those who are sick. As you can tell, many are out this morning because... Either they or someone in their family is sick and they're, they're at home taking care of them. So um, that includes my wife, my family, my kids. Um, I know the McCombs and Amanda as well. And uh, I'm doubtless others whom I'm forgetting at this moment. And I just want to pray just for our health um, in this season. Just sickness is going around. And um, we want to give our, ourselves and trust ourselves to a faithful creator. So we're just going to pray to God. And then we'll dig into his word. So pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to gather, uh, to sing, to worship, to study and sit under your word, to hear from you, and to learn what it means to be a church, striving to be healthy, modeled after the principles of, of scripture, to submit ourselves to your word and restructure ourselves under faithful leaders and shepherds to encourage one another to grow in humility toward one another and above all our love and service to you we pray now for those who are unable to be here because of the sickness and the flu that's been going around uh, father we know that that can be discouraging for families with a sickness that doesn't seem to go away or subside for my own family this is two and a half weeks now of one kid or another. Uh, I know that's the case for others as well. So we just pray for endurance and perseverance now. We pray for rest, comfort, and encouragement in your word. That perhaps for a time the coughing fits would cease and the noses would not run and some relief and reprieve would be felt and it would be an opportunity to give thanks to you Father, we ask, though, that you would bring healing and restoration of health to these bodies quickly. And we remind ourselves, Lord, that we are living in a fallen world. And so as we are sick and blowing our noses or coughing or staying awake with our children, we would remember the promise of the world to come. Where there is no sickness or sorrow but a land of perfect health, glorified bodies with you for eternity. We long for that day with red noses. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Read along with me. Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you, 
as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as the partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, history recognizes both great and terrible leaders. You can be a really good leader and be remembered by posterity and future generations, or a really terrible leader, and so likewise be remembered. You're either remembered for your great leadership or your poor leadership. But not simply that, even good, strong leaders may be remembered for how their leadership was used for good or how their leadership was used for evil. Our history books are replete with examples of men and women of these sorts. Good leaders, bad leaders, strong leaders that use their gifts for good, and strong leaders that use their gifts for evil. But in the church, we're not measured by what history thinks of us. We're measured by what Scripture teaches us and what God ultimately thinks of us. And in the church, just like in the world, leaders are necessary. Leaders are necessary for the proper order and functioning of the church. You need to have leaders to help quell disputes that may come up between members and Christians, to help teach the word, to give counsel, to give authority, direction. And leadership within the church goes beyond just the bounds of the pulpit, but it exists even in the pew, where both men and women can serve in various leadership capacities, leading one another, serving one another, guiding one another, officially or unofficially. Leadership is not a title. It's a character quality that Christians are to grow up into. We should expect, then, that as you mature as a Christian, you also develop as a leader. In fact, here at Foundation, if you've gone through our membership course, you know that our leadership pipeline is the same thing as our discipleship pipeline. That is, we think good disciples make good leaders. And the more mature you grow as a Christian, the better you will be as a leader. This is obvious when you think that the more mature Christians, those who have walked in their faith for some time and have some experience in facing the trials of the world and trusting in the Lord and overcoming those temptations by the enemy and walking faithfully with God in their families and in their workplaces, will then turn to others and lead and help them. They'll do this instinctively without being told to because they were led and so they turn and lead others. So faithful disciples, mature Christians are to be leaders as they grow. 
But Peter's not talking about general leadership in the church, you might have guessed. Look at verse 1. It says, I exhort the elders among you. These are a particular kind of leader. Every elder is a leader, but not every leader in the church would be an elder. Now, here he takes time to exhort the elders, those who have been set aside to lead within the church. Particularly know that these men are elders who have been recognized, set apart for their faithfulness and their maturity to the Lord. And so they've been tasked with the opportunity and the responsibility to lead the church. Now, just containing the word elder is its meaning. Somebody who is mature, sometimes related to age, but relative to the rest of the congregation, someone who has the maturity and the experience to wisely guide and lead the church. That's what it means to be an elder. Another note here just from the text is that both the term elder and overseer there later in verse 2 and the term that Paul uses in 1 Timothy for overseer and the word for shepherd and pastor, these are all synonymous words. The apostles use them interchangeably. So when we say elder, we mean pastor. And when we say pastor, we mean the overseer of the church. And when we mean overseer, we mean a shepherd. This is all the same role and position within the church, whether they're paid for it or not. This is a particular man or group of men, as the Bible teaches that these elders are to be a plurality, who have been recognized for their faithfulness and the maturity set apart by God. So when we look at the who of our text, Peter is turning his attention now to elders. They have a particular calling or responsibility placed on their life to lead the church. Now, why is this important? Well, just earlier in the end of chapter 4, what John taught us from last week, we saw that judgment was to begin within the household of God. Look in verse 17 of chapter 4. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? This is a refining judgment, not a condemnation, but a refining, a purifying of the faith and the purity of genuine Christianity within the body that results in praise and the purity and righteousness. And Peter here says that judgment comes first to the household of God. And then he turns his attention in chapter 5. It begins in with the leaders of the church. So he turns to their mind particularly and exhorts them having just said that judgment would come and begin in the household, that they too should mind their affairs well, that they are necessary, and so they should consider what he has to say. So who does Peter refer to here? Men recognized for their faithfulness and maturity and who have been set apart by God and by the church to lead. Now notice what he says here, I exhort you, the elders, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. He speaks to them not as an apostle, although he certainly has the right to do so, but he appeals to them as an elder and a fellow elder. That is, from one pastor to another, brothers, I want to encourage you 
to shepherd the flock of God. This fellowship of these brothers, these elders, is contained in what he calls the sufferings of Christ. Now, all of us, we've seen already, will follow in the footsteps of our Lord who himself has suffered for us. And so suffering will be ubiquitous and inevitable in the Christian life in one form or another. And we all will share in these sufferings. But there's a particular kind of suffering that the elder who labors among the church will experience. The burdens of ministry, for instance, or the accusations of the enemy. For what better way to take down the church than to cause its leaders to fail and stumble? And even those who are wolves in sheep clothing, who desire to destroy the body. Or for instance, in verse 8 of the same chapter, be sober-minded and be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, elders have their calling, their heritage, really their commissioning in Christ. Peter, as one of the 12 disciples, knows what this means both first-handed. He was there at Christ's literal suffering. But also, in just a few short years after this letter, will experience the suffering himself as he's martyred under the persecution Nero would visit upon the church. So he is a witness and says, as a fellow elder, we are witnesses to the suffering of Christ. And he goes on to say, and partakers are participants in the glory that is to be revealed. So all the the charges and the hopes of an elder in a church finds its meaning and its footing in Christ. So who are these men who are elders in the church, the pastors that are to lead and guide the body of Christ? These are men set apart by God who share in the sufferings of Jesus and who are witnesses to the gospel in their own flesh, by the laying down of their body for the sake of the sheep. And they look and point others to the glory of Christ that will be revealed in the last day. Well, this is who they are, but what are they called to do? Well, he says, he exhorts them to verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. This is the first call. Elders are to shepherd the flock of God. Well, before we determine what a shepherd does, let's determine what a shepherd does not do. Firstly, a shepherd does not enlarge the flock. It is not a shepherd's job to grow it. He is not to set about doubling or tripling the size of the flock. A shepherd may see to the reproduction of the sheep among them, to the healthy disciple-making in the church. But the call and the task for an elder and a shepherd within the church, a pastor's job is not to first grow it, but to care for it. It is not to enlarge the flock, nor, secondly, is it to entertain the flock. A shepherd's job is not to keep the sheep happy, to entertain them, and to make them comfortable. A shepherd's job is not to enlarge or to entertain, but rather a shepherd is to feed the flock. 
a shepherd feeds. Peter is clear about what this means. Jesus himself told him three times, feed my sheep. And so he turns to the elders around him and to whom he writes and says, feed the flock. A good shepherd will feed the flock, nourish them, tends to them and their needs by dispensing the nourishing food of God's word, anointing them among them with the word of God. So a shepherd feeds the flock. Secondly, a shepherd fights for the flock. That is, it's important that elders, shepherds, look around for the various enemies and threats that might prevail against the sheep. What is the prophecy that Paul gives in Acts chapter 20 to the elders in Ephesus? He tells them to beware because there will be wolves that creep in from among them. By the time you read the letter to 1 Timothy, we know that that prophecy has come true and that wolves have come up. And the charge of Timothy now is to shut these wolves down and teach good, sound doctrine. An elder's job, a pastor and a shepherd's job is to fight for the sheep, to fight for God's word to be heard, taught, and understood in the body. We feed with the word. We fight with the word. But lastly, a shepherd feels. That is, the shepherd's heart is for the sheep. The primary concern a shepherd has is not for his own safety or his own health, but for the health and well-being of his flock that was entrusted to him by God. So a pastor and an elder here not only needs to feed the shepherds, the sheep with God's word and fight for the sheep by identifying and exposing threats and enemies from outside or those who may have crept in, but whose heart feels and, and beats for its congregation. A shepherd feeds fights and feels for its flock. Peter's charge here to the elders and to the pastors is to shepherd the flock. But there's a second charge as well. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Exercise oversight. What does this mean? Again, three things. This means firstly that a shepherd has real authority. This is the word we get, our word or term bishop, episcopos. Now, it's not typically helpful for us to use words like bishop when referring to pastors or priests or shepherds. But again, note that they are all interchangeable. This means ultimately taking the authority given to them by God and exercising that oversight over the congregation. A shepherd has real authority to lead and to guide the sheep where he believes God intends for them to go. Now, this is an important caveat. The authority comes from God and not from the man himself. And there are limits to that authority. For instance, I do not have authority to tell you what to eat this evening. But I do have authority to teach you and to tell you what you ought to believe from God's word. Because God has given me authority to do that and not the former. 
Does that make sense? But where my authority has been given to me as an elder, it is a real authority. Now, Peter, in just a moment, will tell pastors how to use and not to use that authority. But we must recognize that a shepherd, in order to carefully love the sheep, has to be given some authority over the sheep. Take care of this flock. It's been entrusted to you by God. And so the authority you have is to do what you must do to preserve the life of the sheep, to lead them, to counsel them, to grab them if you must, and bring them back into the fold lest they wander off into danger and destruction. This is not unlike the authority we have as parents. There's a limited authority over our children's lives, but also a very real authority that we have to care for our children and do what we need to do in order to teach them, preserve them, and train them up. Now, in this case, we usually get to tell them what they eat for dinner. In my case, that normally doesn't work. But my job as a father, as a parent, is to teach my children, train my children, to serve my children with the authority God has given me as their parent. Secondly, the exercise of oversight means that a shepherd has real accountability. Who ultimately is the shepherd answerable to? Well, two answers to that question. First, the, the sheep. The shepherd is ultimately going to answer to the sheep, at least in this analogy, when Paul talks about, or Peter talks about the church. Here we are good Baptists and therefore good Congregationalists, and that means you, members of the foundation, have the authority and at times perhaps the responsibility to fire me if need be. But the real accountability of the shepherd comes from the chief shepherd. And notice what he'll say down in verse 4, that the chief shepherd will appear again. And upon his appearance, you elders will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's an accountability baked into the very structure of the church that both the shepherd will be accountable to the sheep, but ultimately to the good shepherd, Christ. And so this would lead James, the half-brother of Jesus, to say in his letter, but not all of you should become teachers, brothers. Why? Because those who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. That's the bulk of the work of an elder or a pastor in Christ's church. So there's a real accountability that the leaders and the elders of a church must understand that over them. And third, a shepherd has real responsibility. There is a real responsibility to the flock. Shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, to exercise oversight. There is work to be done. Shepherds aren't shepherds just to simply have sheep, but to feed them, to nourish them, but also their job is to help produce from the flock what is good and right and needed for flourishing. Whether that's harvesting the wool to keep others warm and safe, or to graze and provide food at times when needed, the shepherd of the church, his responsibility to the flock is to teach and to guide and to love and to serve and to make sure that the mission of God that's been given to the church goes on unhindered. And so that means looking at individual members of the church, 
counseling them, instructing them, and at times correcting and rebuking them. It means in general oversight ways, considering what is the best direction to go, to lead the church, to feed well and bountifully. So what does a shepherd do? They shepherd the flock, and they exercise oversight over the flock. What's the who and the what? Where? Well, very clearly we see again in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Among you. Not much you think might be said about these two words, among you, but I think this is an important caveat to be made here. The flock of God among you. This implies that a shepherd is doing the work of a shepherd in the midst of the sheep. Not from far away, not from the internet, but is among the sheep whom he is charged to shepherd. And so a shepherd's ministry is to be local. It's to be with the people that he's been given, that have been put under his charge. It's to care for those who live in his community that are members of his church and congregation. It's local. We're not looking for global audiences or platforms. No, a shepherd's responsibility is to his flock and his flock only. And therefore, members, you are not required to submit to any elders of any other church, but the elders of this church only. Elders are not required to teach and hold accountable for those in other churches, but to those who are members of this church only. A shepherd's ministry is local. It's, it's to you who live in the neighborhoods and the communities with the shepherd himself. Often the picture of the shepherd out in the field is with his sheep under the tree or in the midst of the flock with his staff. It's there among them. Secondly, a shepherd's life is to be open. When we say to shepherd the flock among you, Peter says shepherd the flock among you, he means not only to be literally physically among them, but to be open. To faithfully shepherd, there needs to be vulnerability. And the life of a shepherd must be open to its sheep and a sheep open to its shepherd. That is, when we say open, we simply mean that which can be examined, seen, and imitated. This is what he'll say here in just a moment, that there's, a, there's an exemplary modeling aspect to what the shepherd does for Christ there in verse 3. So the life of a pastor should be open to its members of the church. It should be seen and tested. The qualifications for elder and the Bible prove this point. These are not job qualifications. They're not success in the world. They're qualifications of character so that those who labor among the church will be those who have set an example of what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. No, not because they're perfect, but precisely because when they sin, they run to Christ. Because they've got a grasp of what God's word means and teaches. And so a shepherd's life is to be open to the sheep so the sheep love him and trust him. This is exactly what it means for us to love and trust Christ who is our shepherd. The sheep, he says, know my voice. 
They hear me and they come to me. Because Christ has opened his life up to his sheep, so must a shepherd who is to model Christ and Christ-likeness opens his life up to the sheep. And third, a shepherd's care is to be present. That means, ultimately, that though someone can labor in and among a body, and, for instance, open up and be clear about his life, his own struggles, and what it means to labor among the church, the care for a pastor must be ultimately present in the lives of those to whom he must give an account and for whom he must give an account. That is, brothers and sisters, a pastor must be able to walk with you through your grief and your suffering, through your joys and your highs as well as your lows, must be willing to pray with you and for you regularly and constantly. A shepherd is to think openly and honestly about how he may best serve you and then come alongside of you and do so. The offering of his body, of his home, of his money, and of his life at times for the sake of the sheep means that a care for the shepherd is present in the life of the body. So Peter says, shepherd the flock that is among you. Well, how is this to be done? Peter gives three negative and positive examples of what this looks like. He says there, exercise oversight, verse 2, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So the first negative way, which we are not to lead as elders, is under compulsion. But positively, willingly. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Now this kind of compulsion that Peter talks about here is is not one of, uh, of constraint or being compelled to do something For instance, think of the idea of a calling. Now, the kind of compulsion he has in mind here is one of coercion or hesitancy, a pressure to do something that ultimately you don't want to do. But in reality, there is and ought to be in the shepherd pastor's life a very real sense of constraint and duty to shepherd the flock of God. To those who are called to ministry by both God and their church, there is a compelling force. So the willingness here that Peter intends means that shepherds should serve seriously. They count the cost, and they are called and pressed by God and by their conscience and others to take up this work. Shepherds serve seriously. That is, they're led by God. At times, we often may feel pressed or pushed by God to come alongside the church to assist and serve the flock whose hearts are ultimately drawn to the people. The pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, calls this idea a disturbance in the realm of the Spirit. Spurgeon will counsel his students at the pastor's college in London that if they can do anything else, to do that. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be bad at everything else except pastoring to be a pastor, but what this means is that there is a good compulsion, but Peter here means that shepherds should take the role and their calling seriously. As God leads them, they take up the task. As the church calls them, and sets them apart. They submit themselves to that work. And they 
labor seriously. But the second is how, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, he says. Not for shameful gain, or evil, or sordid gain, but eagerly. So personal profit is the wrong motivation for those who would enter into ministry or become pastors or elders within the church. I don't think you need to necessarily worry about that in this congregation. But there are many ways in which a pastor may pursue profit beyond financial. Pride is often the downfall of many more pastors than money, though both may contribute to the same cause. No, the wrong motivation to pursue and to be set apart and to enter into this kind of work, to be a shepherd, should not be the personal profit and gain one may receive from this task. Why? Well, what happens when, when the pastor of a church only sees his work as something to be gained? Well, the sheep become exploited. That is, the pastor begins to see them as a means to an end, to get what he is in his job to do. And instead of caring for them, he commodifies them. How much will he give? How much is this family worth? How can they help and serve me? How can I do this better? So there's many ways to seek gain other than money. But rather, Peter says, shepherds serve selflessly. They serve selflessly. Now, though we do see in the New Testament the practice and the call ultimately to pay those who labor among them, especially those who preach, this is not a requirement of every church. And in fact, many times it makes more sense, like in Paul's case, to have a tent-making pastor. Nonetheless, shepherds should, should serve selflessly, whether they're paid by the church or compensated by the church or not whether they have their needs met by the church or not. They serve selflessly because they are servants of God and of God's flock. Elders, in many ways, are servant leaders. In fact, keep your thumb here in 1 Peter and go to Luke chapter 17. Jesus there teaches the parable of the unworthy servant. Luke 17, we'll read verses 7 through 10. Jesus says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Brothers and sisters, as you consider your pastors, this must be their disposition. If for a moment you think that myself or Jake or John desires to be an elder in this church because of something they gain, and they don't have the attitude of, we're unworthy servants. We're just doing what we're commanded. Then it's time to have a little chat. 
shepherds serve selflessly. Not only this, but with eagerness, it says. With eagerness. And so as you consider those who would be your shepherds, you are to look to their zeal for the house of the Lord and ask what animates them, what brings them energy. See, if their passions lie outside of the work of the Lord, which is to labor among God's people, then they have not yet been made fit for leadership within the church. And brothers, if you feel at all called to to shepherd the flock of God, perhaps in your own future, and your passion and your energy is found outside, in fact, you'd rather do something like teach or have some other pride and position but not deal with the sheep, then brother, you are not called to be a pastor. You are not fit for that kind of ministry because you are to serve selflessly with eagerness serving the sheep. Thirdly, he says that shepherds are not to be domineering over those in their charge, but are examples to the flock in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This means that shepherds serve as stewards of God's flock. In fact, we see that those who have been given to them or who are under their charge, it says, is in the Greek something like an inheritance they've received from the Lord, a gift to be stewarded, to be treated well, and to deal harshly with God's people is to invite the wrath and judgment of God himself. Shepherds serve as stewards of God's flock because it is not theirs technically, but God's. And God has given them this flock, this particular flock, and that particular people with their particular struggles and idiosyncrasies as a gift and inheritance to be stewarded, loved, attended to. And so they are not to be domineering or harsh or impatient Those who have such a tone are not going to be good shepherds. This is true in any really leadership position in a place of authority, in the house, in the workplace. Those in authority who are harsh, domineering, exacting, impatient, and unforgiving will not bring out the best of those who are underneath of them. They will not care for and tenderly love and trim and grow that which is in front of them. And so gentleness and patience and tenderheartedness is needed in those who would lead the church in her mission for the sake of God. And this, of course, is the heart of God. You are to be examples to the flock. An example of who? Of God himself. Consider Isaiah's words speaking of the Lord in verse 3 of chapter 42. He says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a fainting burning wick he will not quench. It's a beautiful picture of the tenderness of the heart of God for his people. Bruised and broken, but not fully extinguished or trampled underfoot. Indeed, as you know, it's the very heart of Christ himself who tells us in the Gospels that he is gentle and lowly in heart. The kind of God we serve is one who is gentle and lowly, tender to his flock, who may at times discipline and correct his children, but will never cast them out, 
will always draw near. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Why? Why do we need elders? Why are shepherds so important? He tells us in verse 1, because of the glory that is about to be revealed. And again in verse 4, because there will be an appearing of the chief shepherd. We've already mentioned that elders will be accountable ultimately to the chief shepherd. And the reward of their faithfulness will be this unfading crown of glory. But there will also be judgment that may come for those who do not labor faithfully, who teach unwisely or unbiblically, who are actually domineering and harsh, overbearing, and unloving to the flock, God's own people. And so we need shepherds. We need a plurality of shepherds, elders, pastors, to, number one, prepare us for suffering, for trial, for difficulty, ultimately to prepare us for death. Shepherds prepare Christians for suffering and the difficulties they will face in their life. It is my most important job, brothers and sisters, to make sure that when you die or when the Lord comes, whichever may happen first, you are prepared to meet him and dwell with him forever and eternity. That is my primary task as a shepherd, to prepare you to meet the Lord, but also through God's word to prepare you for suffering, for difficulty, for trials, to prepare you to love others when it's difficult to do so, to prepare you to turn the other cheek when you are struck, or to give a second tunic, or to walk the extra mile, or to pray for those who persecute you, See, when difficulty comes, and it will come, the job and the role of a shepherd, when done well, will have prepared you for those things. So shepherds prepare Christians for suffering. Secondly, we need shepherds because shepherds protect God's flock and God's word from wolves. Without shepherds, the sheep are left to wander in the field vulnerable to threats who would sneak in and devour the sheep. Let us not be so naive that each one of us is so smart or so talented or so well-studied that we'll see every threat coming. No, we need men and women in our lives caring for us and watching out for us. That's the promise we make to one another in our covenant, that foundation. But shepherds particularly are looking out over the flock and considering not only their welfare, but how to care for them in the threat of the enemy. Wolves will come in in sheep's clothing. A lion is prowling around seeking to destroy. You have an enemy and an accuser who wants to destroy your life. But shepherds help protect you and the word from wolves who would twist and distort it. And we need shepherds, lastly, because shepherds promote holiness and humility. We'll be able to spend as much time on the topic of humility as I'd like. He says, likewise, in verse 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders and clothe yourselves, all of you, that's not just the young men or the elders, but everyone in the church, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, and therefore, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, 
casting all your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. So the shepherd's job is to promote holiness and humility within the body so that you don't come under the judgment of God, that you are not in opposition to the Lord who opposes the proud, but rather in the position to receive grace from God because you have humbled yourself under his hand, that he will exalt you at the proper time, and that as you come to him and cast your anxieties and your burdens on him in a humble, contrite way, he brings up your countenance and says, Child, you are loved. Go and love others. That's what it means to walk in holiness and humility as you turn toward your neighbor, both Christian and non-Christian alike, and serve God. Shepherds help us do that by feeding us with God's word, by in their own lives modeling what humility and hospitality and holiness would look like, caring for, loving, serving, and ultimately modeling Christ. In fact, I want to end by looking just a moment at Psalm 23. Peter says that Christ is our chief shepherd. Paul says that Jesus is the head of the church. Peter says that the chief shepherd of the church is Christ. And so elders, pastors like myself, are actually under shepherds, answerable to Christ. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, verses 11 and 14, that I am the good shepherd. So we know that Christ and Christ only is the good, true shepherd of the church. For he is God the Son, and the Lord is the shepherd of his people. So Jesus, we learn, is the humble shepherd of God's people. And Jesus has laid down his life for the sheep. See, he cares for us in part through the tender care of his under-shepherds, the pastors that he has given to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But it is Jesus who is all of our shepherds, shepherd, all of our true elder. And so as our shepherd, Jesus does four things. As our shepherd, firstly, Jesus gives us rest. In fact, sorry, I, I meant to read Psalm 23. So turn, turn there, and we'll end here. No doubt a familiar chapter to you, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus is the shepherd of God's people, our chief shepherd, and as such, firstly, he gives us rest. 
the Lord is our shepherd. We are not lacking in anything. But in verse 2, it tells us that he makes us lay down in green pastures. He leads us to still waters where we are refreshed and receive rest. Jesus gives us rest. Not only does he say in John 10 that he is the good shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep, but he tells us very clearly in Matthew that all those who come to him will receive rest. Jesus gives us the rest. He leads us to true rest. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that all those who are united to Christ by faith rest from our works in Christ. We receive rest. Secondly, Jesus accompanies our suffering. Even though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Jesus, as our chief shepherd, accompanies us in our suffering. He's present in the midst of our trials and difficulties, even when no one else is. He's able to go further than anyone else can walk with us. He accompanies us in our suffering, there in the valley of the shadow of death, in our lowest of times. He knows our suffering and is present with us. Third, as our shepherd, Jesus is also our victory. When it says in verse 5 there in in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of thy enemies, it is because we have received in Christ victory over our enemies, over sin and death and darkness and the domain of darkness and the forces that seek to do us harm has been conquered by Christ. And therefore, as Christians, disciples and followers of Jesus, who is our chief shepherd, we have victory in Christ through his blood spilled for us. In his death, he defeats death. So we would have victory over it. Lastly, as our shepherd, Jesus leads us to the presence of God leads us into the presence of God. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do we receive the presence of God? We are led there by Christ. We are led there by Jesus. He, as our shepherd, leads us to the presence of God's kingdom. Jesus is our chief shepherd. But how does he do these things? Well, the shepherd became the sheep. That's the heart of the gospel, is that the shepherd, in order to lead us to the heart of God, to be for us our victory, to accompany us in our suffering, to give us hope in the midst of our difficulties, to give us rest when we are tired and struggling, in order to do that, he had to become like us. The shepherd put down his staff and became the sheep. As John 1 would put it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The shepherd becomes the sheep. He takes on the suffering of the sheep itself so that the sheep of his fold and his flock may flourish and grow and thrive. That they would not be devoured by the enemy. But he who became for us sin freed us from the power and the temptation of sin and became for us our righteousness. Not only did he become the sheep, but the shepherd walked through the valley of the shadow of death. 
So it's not simply enough that he's with us as we go through it, but he is our help and our comfort in the valley of the shadow of death precisely because he has already gone through it. He has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He alone is the only guide who can see us through to the other end without our hope being lost or our lives destroyed. When it says that we are with him in the shadow of the valley of death, when we will fear no evil, it is because he is with us as we walk because he and he alone has made that journey before. The shepherd has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He has gone on. He suffered. Because what does the prophet Isaiah tell us? Like a sheep before its shearers was silent, so he opened not his mouth. The good shepherd became a sheep, laid down his life for the flock, walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and faced the temptation of evil Indeed, was put to death by the hands of evil men. But God, in his grace, raised him from the dead. That the sheep who was slain, the lamb who died for our sins, does not stay dead, but was risen again. And that's why when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, and we understand Christ is with us, walking with us through our own pain and struggle, we know that he is with us and will see us through the very end because he was risen. Because he has not only walked through it and become like us, but he has seen the other side and in victory promises that for us. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our chief shepherd. And we have the opportunity now to think about pastors and elders and what it means to have men serving us in this capacity in our church. But it is true for every one of us, elder or not, that Christ is our shepherd. And that either me or Jake or John or any other man who may become a pastor or an elder in this church or any other church submits ourselves to his work, to the gospel that he has made real for us. It is not enough to turn our attention to one man or even a group of men, no matter how charismatic or holy or impressive they may be. But Christ is the chief shepherd of the church. And it's from him the elders and the under-shepherds of this church will take our cue. And it's to him that all of us will look as we walk and face our own valley of the shadow of death. We trust in the promises that because he was raised from the dead, we will have a table that is prepared for us even now in the presence of our enemies where our cup will overflow and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, much more can be said about any of these things we've spoken of this morning but all we can do is humbly give thanks to you who loves us cares for us so much so that you have sent your son to become like us to suffer for us and risen again now is for us our guide our shepherd And Lord, we are grateful for the gift of the Spirit who comforts us to that reality and reminds us of the gospel that Jesus died for us, was resurrected on the third day, and gives us hope and assurance that yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. We're grateful for Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. Grateful for his ministry 
We are grateful for the men that you are raising up among this body to model Christ for us so that we would more faithfully behold your glory and praise your name. Again, we thank you, we love you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recent sermons are released under a Creative Commons non-commercial, no-derivative 3.0 license. If you'd like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. For it is righteousness of God. Mercy cleansing every stain. Now rushing roars like a flame. Hear the roar.